Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about ten days in Yangzhou. On May nineteenth, sixteen forty-five, the Chinese commander and loyal servant of what was left of the Ming Dynasty looked out from atop the five and a half mile long walls. Of the city, what he saw must have struck fear into his heart, for he immediately dispatched messengers with urgent messages seeking reinforcements. What he saw was an array of European-made cannons, what the Chinese called red barbarian guns. These imported weapons had come to dominate. Seventeenth-century Chinese battlefields, as traditional weaponry and tactics had no clear answer against these powerful firearms. In the face of them, staring down their barrels, and perhaps spotting in the enemy ranks the prince who was his chief adversary, the Chinese commander must have intuited his own impending doom. But let's back up for a moment and set the scene properly. The year, as I said, was sixteen forty-five. As you may or may not recall, the Ming Dynasty is generally considered to have ended a year earlier, in sixteen forty-four, when the Chongzhen Emperor hanged himself just outside the Forbidden City in Beijing. But Empires don't die quite so decisively. So even as the Manchu-led Qing regime took Beijing and then swept across northern China, in the south, the remnants of the Ming proclaimed a new emperor and a new capital in the city of Nanjing. They called themselves the Southern Ming. Nanjing, some three hundred kilometers northwest of Shanghai was and remains one of China's great cities, and at various times it served as the capital. But a new capital also just meant a new target, and the Qing army continued south and marched toward it. And by May of sixteen forty-five, on the Western calendar, Qing forces had reached. The city of Yangzhou, which is only about ninety kilometers northeast of Nanjing, Yangzhou had been a prominent city in its own right for centuries. Here is how Professor James Carter describes it in a recent column: Yangzhou has ancient roots. It was one of the provinces mentioned in classical texts, like. The rights of Zhou, and became a regional capital in the Sui Dynasty. At that same time, the completion of the Grand Canal, linking the north and the south, made Yangzhou a port city, where goods could move between the canal and the Yangtze River, and one of the most important commercial centers in China. In the Tang, the city was home to a 
large community of Arab merchants. Yangzhou was briefly the capital of the Song Dynasty after Kaifeng fell to the Jurchens in 1126, and under the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, it seems to have been an international city with a community of Italian merchants, including one Marco Polo, who claimed to have served as its governor, though the claim is hard to substantiate. And it was during the Ming period that Yangzhou achieved its greatest prosperity. Indeed, that entire Yangtze Delta area became China's economic engine, as it still is today. When Yangzhou came under siege, the Minister of War of the Southern Ming rushed over there to take command personally. His name, which was fated to go down in Chinese history books as one of honor and fame, was Shi Kefa. Shi Kefa came from a Mandarin family. His grandfather had served as a provincial governor, and in an example of the virgin birth motif of the Yongian heroic myth. That we've talked about before on this podcast, right before Shi Kefa was born in 1602, his mother supposedly dreamed of the great patriot and Song Dynasty Chancellor Wen Tianxiang, who had stood against the Mongol Empire. We, of course, have talked about Wen Tianxiang before on this podcast. Shi Kefa. Went on to achieve the Jingshi rank in the civil service examination, the highest rank possible during the reign of Emperor Chongzhen. Now, Chongzhen actually had something of a premonition that Beijing and the North would fall, and in 1643 he made Shi Kefa the Minister of War in the South, stationed in Nanjing. As the backup capital, so when Beijing fell the following year and Chongzhen died, Shi Kefa was already in place in Nanjing as the de facto leader of the court of the Southern Ming. Arguably, though, at this juncture, Shi Kefa failed as a statesman. The political factions within the Ming court continued their infighting. Shi Kefa was never able to force them to set aside their differences, and as the mandarins debated which of the imperial cousins to name as the next emperor, Shi Kefa preferred the cousin with superior personal qualities, but ultimately he had to bow to politics and allow the accession of the cousin who was neither moral. Nor capable, and was a known alcoholic. Indeed, the generally rotten state of Ming officialdom, even in this time of crisis, was made clear when, from the walls of Yangzhou, Shi Kefa sent out messengers to call in reinforcements. Because, no reinforcements came. 
On the other side, leading the Qing troops, was Prince Dodo of House Eisenjero. Born in 1614, Dodo was the 15th son of Norhachi, one of the great conquerors in Asian history, the founder of the House of Eisenjero, and retroactively made the founding emperor of the Qing dynasty. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you may recall that at the beginning of the film, Indy struggles against a Shanghai mobster over the remains of Norhachi contained in an urn. Well, Dodo was one of the sons of the real man behind that bit of Hollywood fiction. And Dodo was, to borrow a British expression, a massive lad. Growing up, he couldn't be bothered to follow the social conventions that were meant to mark the class distinctions between royalty, such as himself, and people of lower ranks. And he pursued women like a hound dog. At one point, he earned himself a demotion for bringing prostitutes into the army camp. In adulthood, though, Dodo hit his stride and became one of the early Qing's most successful generals. Throughout the 1640s, he won major victories against the Ming. And now he was outside the gates of Yangzhou. Although for a number of days, Dodo actually sought to prevail diplomatically rather than militarily. He repeatedly sent envoys to Shikofa within the city to persuade the Ming minister of war to switch sides. If he should do so, Dodo promised, then Shikofa would not only preserve his own life, but go on to live a life of wealth and prestige as one of the Qing court's most esteemed advisors. Shikofa not only rejected Dodo's overtures, he killed the messengers. Dodo's brother, Dorgon, the prince regent, who at this time was the true power at the Qing court, also wrote to Shikofa, appealing to him to surrender. Shikofa sent a reply letter declining Dorgon's kind offer. But some of the other Ming officers weren't quite as firm in their convictions. Some of them snuck out and surrendered. One loyal deputy, though, stuck by the minister's side at this time. Shukufa legally adopted him as his son. Eventually, Shukufa exhausted Dodo's patience. On May 20th, 1645, Dodo ordered his men to attack. Professor Carter quotes Frederick Wakeman. Dodo had ordered his men to take Yangzhou, whatever the cost, and as each Qing infantryman was struck down by an arrow, another took his place. Soon the corpses were piled so high that some of the attackers did not even need ladders to scale the walls. Qing troops breached 
the city, and poured into it through every gate and every opening in the walls, punched through by the cannons. As he watched his city fall, Shekhofa tried to kill himself. But the self-inflicted wound was not deep enough, and he still stood. So he ran out to meet the Qing troops, crying out, I am Shekhofa, and I have come here to die. The Qing troops granted his wish and beheaded him on the spot. Even after his death, though, some Ming troops continued to resist, fighting street battles for days until the Qing forces finally put them down. A surviving secretary on Shikofa's staff, a man by the name of Wang Xiuchu, recorded the massacre that occurred during this time in an account called Ten Days in Yangzhou. Qing troops forced male civilians into the execution yard. None dared to resist, none even dared to run. In the execution yard, they ordered the men to kneel. They did. Then the Qing troops cut off their heads. Women had long ropes tied to their necks, so many of them looking like pearls on strings. They fell with each step as they were dragged along muddy. Babies were strewn everywhere. Horse hoofs and human feet trampled them to death. Their brains and their guts were mixed in with the soil. By the ninth day, corpses clogged the streets. When it rained, the street flooded and the bodies grew bloated. The skins green and stretched out like the skin of drums, even as the flesh within rotted away. The stink of it attacked the living. When rain passed and the sun returned, the miasma of death grew even worse both indoors and outdoors, so much so as to form a kind of mist that stretched for dozens of miles. Wang Xiuqu estimated the death toll to be around 800,000. Although modern scholars generally agree that this figure was exaggerated or not meant to be literal, and the true figure was much lower. In any event, thus ended the Battle of Yangzhou. Shikofa's body was lost and never recovered in the chaos. His adopted son, however, did manage to survive. A year later, he took a belt that belonged to Shikofa and erected a tomb for him just outside Yangzhou with only the belt buried inside. Prince Stodo continued his campaign into Nanjing itself, where he captured the newly installed emperor of the southern Ming. He continued his illustrious military career until he caught smallpox, dying in 1649 at the age of 35.
The massacre in Yangzhou went on to carry a significance beyond itself and beyond its time, as Professor Carter puts it. The memory of Yangzhou came to be as important as the massacre itself. Wang Xiuchu's account, ten days in Yangzhou, was banned during the Qing Dynasty, for fear that such graphic accounts of Qing atrocities would stir Han Chinese nationalism and serve to delegitimize Qing rule. For the next two hundred years, though it wasn't as though people didn't remember that the massacre happened, the Chinese had no detailed account of it. In the late nineteenth century, as public opinion turned against the Qing imperial regime, as revolutionaries began to organize armed uprisings and to espouse republicanism, someone managed to dig up a copy of Ten Days in Yangzhou in a library in Tokyo, and brought it back to China for publication. The story of The 1645 massacre then served to justify revolution, which finally succeeded in 1911. And then, in the Second World War, with Japanese atrocities such as the rape of Nanjing in 1938, the Chinese remembered Yangzhou yet again, and the memory put modern war crimes into historical context. The memory persists even today. In Chinese, if you want to describe a scene of a massacre, say Bucha in Ukraine, you can say it's like ten days in Yangzhou. This has been M O D G. Thank you for listening.